We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Sid, thanks for joining me on the pod today. Yeah, great to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. Big fan of HubSpot and big fan of finance strategy and ops. And you sit at the epicenter of all the cool stuff that our fellow nerds like. Love it. Love it. We're going we're gonna to geek out for the next hour. I'm excited. All right, strap in for this jam session. I'm coming from the top ropes in the first one. There are going to be a lot of people in their car pounding the dashboard or window, depending on the answer. But where should RevOps sit within the organization? Is it a finance group, sales group, operations group? Where do you put it? I'm going to say uh, it, it depends. And I'm not trying to cop out on the answer. I actually think as long as it's really close to the close to the business and not at arm's length from the business, very close to the business, understand what's happening on the ground with reps, with customers, with partners. If you can maintain that pulse, I don't think it matters where it sits. But I think that level of um, intimacy and understanding of the day in the life of the rep, the day in the life of a customer uh, partner, for example, is is critical. So wherever New York allows you to maintain that perspective, it doesn't matter. Like today, we sit in a uh, in, in at HubSpot, RevOps sits as part of our chief customer officer team, which is our flywheel, which our go-to-market teams call flywheel, sales, marketing, customer success, and RevOps. So we're part of the go-to-market organization. So you're pretty close to sale then. Is sales is what you're saying? Very close to sales, customer success, and and marketing. So that's how we define RevOps as full go-to-market alignment across the flywheel. So really beginning of the journey through renewal, expansion, and uh, and loyalty. It's funny because you can never please everybody with this because I've heard criticism of if it's in finance, well, they're not out in the org enough. And then I've heard if it's in sales, they're in sales back pocket and it's going to take too long for signals to bubble up. I, well, I think there's, there's, I guess, how you're structured and what you set the expectations of. Like, I think part of the shift between call it a, a sales ops 1.0 and rev ops is that you're a co-pilot with you know, your co-pilot with your chief sales officer or chief marketing officer, you have that mindset. It doesn't matter where you sit. It's thinking about, are you solving for the customer? Or are you solving for the company? And then helping orchestrate the pieces and helping your leaders see around corners. Well, you just said there, you solving for the customer. I never thought about it that way. That, that's a cool way to put it. That's, we talk about that all, all the time at HubSpot, like SFTC, solve for the customer. And if you work back from that, that will help you. And you really understand what your buyer's journey looks like. And we spent a lot of time thinking about that and obsessing over it. Our, our buyer's journey, we call it CCOM, customer-centric operating model. So we have one model across our go-to-market organization where we really try to understand what are all those engagement touch points digital and human, and and then think about what are the outcomes our, our customers or prospects are trying to achieve at each of those different points in the journey. And then we think about 
who are the people, who are the capability, what are the capabilities to go to go support that? Sid, this is a really nerdy question, but if I'm a CFO looking at the PNL, wh- where does where does your paycheck hit every two weeks in my PNL? Are you in sales? Are you in? You probably wouldn't be in support. I don't. How do I look at that? Are you allocated? We're a we're part of the we're an ops function within within the go to market organization. So if you think about your your question earlier, it, it's not reporting into sales. It's a peer to sales. But it's within the go-to-market organization. It's a peer to marketing. It's a peer to uh, customer success. But it's it's part of the go-to-market organization. So you you maintain some of that closeness of what's happening in each of those different teams to go go deliver for that. In my simple mind, there's always the hierarchy of where something rolls up to, and then there's where the cost hits, and they're not always the same thing. So I've had the thing before where maybe you have a business partner who's in RevOps but they're rolling up to sales, but their cost is going to hit in GNA. So there are all different flavors of this. So many models. What, when do you think a company should hire their first RevOps person? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's when you start to, you know, it's, I don't think it's ever too early, but I think when you start to differentiate your go-to-market model, like if you have, you know, a single seller and you, you've just transitioning from a founder-led sales model to hiring your first AE, maybe a little bit early, but you start to uh, really think about getting your first, you know, VP of sales or head of sales. You start to add some marketing uh, capabilities, whether that's a VP of marketing or not. You start to have a set of customers that you need to go service and really understand what their experience looks like. So it's at, it's, it's at that like cusp of like, you know, product market fit and and, and go-to-market fit is where I would really start thinking about this uh, holistically. And I think there's a there's there's long-term horizon type of capabilities to start thinking about. Like you can never get started too early on implementing your data data stack. We're thinking about how do you want to manage, measure, and and um, consume data across your organization. And I think we all know. The longer you kick that can down the road, the harder it gets to go back in time and and uh, and go sort of retrofit without slowing things down. So the data is one of those things I think is like a beginning of the journey, you know, as you're starting to really think about the inception of the company to really start thinking about what is your data, what is your data strategy, what is that going to look like between first party and third party data, and then as you as you grow and evolve, there's going to be a, a systems strategy. What's your tech stack look like? What are your tools and capabilities going to look like? And and who are they helping to uh, either make more productive or what customer experience is it trying to make better, right? And and then I think it's think really when I think about RevOps, it, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's that co-pilot. It's that key business partner that is working in tandem, hand in hand, and helping see around partners. We spent a lot of time as as you know, uh, finance and ops professionals on hindsight. We're getting to insight. We now need to get to foresight. And I think the foresight is what did you learn from the insight that is going to help you predict the future and and go drive and change that trajectory based on what you've learned and staying close to the pulse of what's happening in your business? What are the pivots you're going to make? First off, I love the term co-pilot. And I don't know why I can't get this out of my mind, but I'm thinking of someone doing Baja racing in one of those cool pickup trucks in in the <laughs> desert and, and yeah. you got the sales guy driving like a madman and then you got the rev ops guy with the map 
you're having somebody just keep them your course correcting and telling stay them. on the road we're going 80 miles per hour i i like that and i also like how you said a peer to sales i think that's really important and i've read a bit about this online of how hubspot makes it very clear that this is an org with a huge say at the table it's not a you know, you are serving people. Every org, in a sense, is a customer service org, depending on who your customer is in the org. But but you're you have an equal seat at the table and an equal voice. Yeah, and I think it's put. You know, it's part strategy, part ops. It's it's a lot of alignment with with uh, with finance to make sure uh, we're we have our ducks in a row there. So yeah, it's a it's in the middle of a lot of a uh, lot of pieces on bringing strategy through to execution for sure. And another group that's in the middle of a lot of this is FP&A. And you mentioned finance. Can you break down how you think about the, the differences between FP&A and RevOps? Because one of my favorite sayings is that accidents happen at intersections. I'm stealing that from Ethan Schechter, who's the first VP of sales hire at Sneak. But I remember in my experience when we were going fast, FP&A and RevOps would clash from time to time. Yeah, no, we we, we work really well with our FP&A team. I think we and I think part of it is just getting really clear on what is that engagement model look like and what perspectives are each of you coming at it from. And I think if you think about RevOps, as I said, it's it's really understanding that ground truth, what's happening with the rep experience, the customer experience, the partner experience. How does all of that feed into our view of what the market opportunity is, resource allocation to go after that? That's a set of perspectives that I think needs to marry and, and and sort of match the perspective of the top down in some sense. You know, what are your growth objectives as a company? What does that multi-year financial plan look like that, uh, that, that that there's an expectation to go deliver? So I think they're different. They're somewhat different altitudes, but where the rubber meets the road in a three-year plan is the first year of the three-year plan, right? And it's 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 really because you're, you're typically getting into planning. Planning is a not is a jointly owned activity between FBA and RevOps, and it's a a really good, you know, push pull dynamic, where you know we know what we're trying to do, and we're going to go out there and and go validate, iterate, and go test those assumptions, and and then have a point of view on. The feasibility or you know where there's you know puts and takes so that's how that's how i think about it i love how you said the rubber the rubber meets the road in the first year of the three-year plan because until then it really is just that it's just a plan on a piece of paper just to maybe get a bit tactical here so rep comp plans where is the right place for that to sit is that an fp and a thing or is that a RevOps thing that's a good question. That is comp is one of these that is uh, it's got a lot of it, it's a very important thing to get right, and it's such an important element of making sure you execute your strategy with precision because it's you know do you have the incentives aligned to your strategy. So this one is one not probably not surprisingly that has a number of different areas that are involved. Um, you have uh, people operations from a you know comp and uh, what does that look like from a market standpoint, competitiveness, et cetera. You have uh, FP&A around, we're going to have a set of guardrails and what we're able to and can absorb from a P&L standpoint. And, and then three, the other perspective is going to be, well, what's going to actually motivate and drive the right behavior on the ground when it comes to your reps? So I think of it as there's comp 
strategy and comp uh, design. So if I think about the variable component, for example, in a rep comp plan, that's something RevOps is, is deciding with in tandem with sales leadership or CS leadership. What's the strategy? What are the outcomes we're trying to drive as a result of that strategy? How do we make sure that cascades all the way down to reps? And there's there's this tight alignment. Now, in doing that, we have to go look at this from all the different sides and make sure we're doing it in a way where it's it's balanced from a from a, from a financial perspective, from a people perspective. So that's where we, we work really closely with our FBA and people operations partners. That's a true sort of horizontal. There's I don't think I've ever worked at a company where it only sits in one place because that's you know when you're talking about software or you know an IP driven business when people are your you know pretty much your your, your primary asset you, you really have to think about that that cost on on the PL. Now we're cooking. Okay. This is this is awesome, Sid. So I'm gonna jump around a bit, but one of the topics me and you were going to jam on was incentives and outcomes. And I, I think we've teed this up nicely. So can you just speak to the qualities of maybe a bad commission plan versus a good commission plan? Yeah, I think one that um, just, you know, from past experience, um, you know, in a, in a prior life, I ran digital sales uh, when I was at CA and I thought about comp plan design a lot at that time and saying, what are the behaviors that you're trying to motivate and decide? And how does this land when it lands in front of a rep on the, on the first of the year? And I, I really like to keep it simple. That's, you know, are you sending the right message with the comp plan that the objectives for that individual are very clear and easy to understand and tied back to the strategy? So one thing I've seen is try to put too much in a comp plan or have a, you know, a five-part comp plan with multiple weightings. It, you, you create confusion and you create a lack of clarity around where to spend time and be intentional about it when you're the rep. So... I always like to just make it as simple as possible, but make it very clearly aligned to the strategy. I think that's uh, simplicity and ease of understanding what is going to move the needle and how do they feel part of the success and then participate in that financially. I'm just thinking back at the comp plans I've seen before where they've gone wrong and I'm reflecting in real time. I think most of those have gone off the rails because not, not because they were too aggressive, but because they were too complicated. Yeah, it's your it's if you think about the ways these can be interpreted and the lack of consistency if you have five metrics each 20% each weighting it's it's a you're signaling that all five of these things are equal importance. Yeah, and I look at the percentages as what gets a rep out of bed in the morning to you know, lean on this button versus that one. And like you said, if you have one thing that's 80% and the other one that's 20, they may just try to optimize the crap out of that 80% waiting. That's right. That's right. It's, it's trying to, it's really trying to understand. And the other, I think, good best practice is put it in front of some reps for sales leadership. As you're thinking about, you know, different, different comp plans, um, get some feedback on how it would resonate. Maybe not all the way down to the rep per se, but certainly, uh, sales leadership, how is this going to be? If this is our objective or intent and the outcomes we're trying to drive, is this comp plan uh, engineered to help help drive that? And I think that's a, that's that's a that's an important one to do. the the other The other piece of it is, I think, with if you have a simple comp plan that is aligned to 
the objectives you want this individual to drive. The the next side is you want to create the right incentives to achieve and exceed that plan, setting the targets appropriately. So to your point earlier, it's it's easy to say, you know, you want some astronomical growth on a number. But I think you go back to think about this landing in a rep's hand. What are the motivations it's going to create if it's so far out of reality versus are you setting it so it's aggressive but achievable and you're giving the incentives, accelerators, SPIFs, whatever that might be to say, you know, we want you to not only hit this, but strive to exceed it and you're going to, you're going to participate in the upside. How do you think about getting sales reps to that multiplier, accelerator, or upside? Is that something that's usually back-end loaded, or do you want them to be able to have a taste of that extra cash each quarter? You, either either way, it depends on how you sell. It depends on how your your business model works. Are you very like are they long? Um, the conversation we were having earlier, you know, are they long enterprise deals that have a long sales cycle and typically tend to be back-end loaded? If that's the case, you probably want it to be on an annual level. If you have more of an MRR-based business with shorter sales cycles and you want to drive more smooth linearity as you go through the year, you could look at a quarterly type of uh, accelerator. I, I think it re- that that is one where it really depends on what the sales cycle looks like, what is the complexity of the sale, and it goes back to what are the behaviors you're trying to drive. In that case, you're trying to you're trying to effectively drive some level of consistent linearity and not have like a you know everything back end loaded. In that case, is, is probably where you're all of it. Yeah, and now now I'm working at a marketplace business that's usage based with a take rate model. But I came from a world where it was enterprise SaaS deals, where I think it was sixty percent of our year was in the second half, of which forty percent was in the fourth quarter, of which twenty five percent was in December, of which like. 10 or 15% was in the last week. And I still get heartburn sometimes thinking about that. And that was always when the reps would hit these massive accelerators at that time too, it was all back end loaded. All back end, yeah. It's 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 interesting. And and then do you sort of self-perpetuate that behavior or is that just the of the business? And so that's, that's what you have to really kind of ask yourself. I, I'm so glad you said that because you are actually self-perpetuating that in a lot of ways where you're incentivizing people to wait to get those deals. Yeah, and I go back to, is it... When I would the solve for the customer is that how you've trained your customers to engage with your company and, and operate, or should you is the incentive actually creating the wrong behavior? It's like if your objective is I'm going to solve for the customer when and where and how they need it, and not going to go create sort of an artificial, you know, deadline um, for that. You, you follow their you know, flow and help guide that journey. But yeah, you, you have to, I think those are all great questions to, to really think about. It's what's there as a result of the incentives you put in place. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. That's something for finance strategy and operations people to sit back and ask themselves, am I creating an artificial deadline? Because the customers are going to be corralled into that, whether you meant to or not. Like, did you put that artificial constraint there? Yeah, I think it's something for that's a great area of like partnership, like between the teams. It's like looking at the things that are in place, the policies, the procedures. Are they driving the outcomes you want for the business? And if not, let's go 
understand why and what adjustments or tweaks. I think you have to reserve the right to be wrong and and uh, and, and tweak. When you talk about reserving the right to be wrong and tweak, how do you balance that with trying to set an aggressive goal? I mean, you have expectations that the street wants you to manage to at, at other startups that are privately held. They have a board that's pushing them to some astronomical number that they put on a pitch deck five years ago. How do you how do you manage these huge expectations with also being reasonable so reps don't get bummed out? One of the things we've, we've put in place is this concept of like always be planning or agile planning. And it's a it's really going into the year, understanding all of the leading indicators and input metrics that go into the different parts of our plan. And we're looking at those every month and gives us the ability to sort of like react to and say, all right, when we set that plan last year, what were the set of assumptions we had? What are the set of us? What are the, what are the realities? Do they differ? Do they, are, are they aligned? Are they positive, negative? Like what, what does that look like? And what does that imply for our, 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 our need or desire to go do some course correction on it and, and maybe go revisit some of those assumptions. Does that make sense? So if, if you, and I'll give an example, like when I was, when I was, uh, this is back at Siri, when I was running a, the digital sales business, an example there was, you know, you set a plan at the beginning of the year, understanding what the market opportunity you think it, it sits across the different geos. You get into the year, you realize one market's taking off, whereas another market is, is really not, you know, getting traction. And I remember having the, the ability to literally shift quota in the middle of that year from one place to the other so that we were able to go like go go hit the overall number but got there in a different way than i thought so i think it's being that's where i say reserve the right to be wrong on your assumptions and understand what your objectives are and say all right well if i thought this was the path to get to this outcome and you know macro is not what i thought it was or uh, you know whatever the market dynamics have shifted what is my point of view on those 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 outcomes and what is the fastest path to still get there? It may not have been the same mix that you had uh, you know three or four months ago when the plan was was inked and, and dried, you know That's great because three lefts can I guess make a right. I don't know if I did that. I'm not good with directions. but what are some of the other reactions you could take? So you're saying you could shift from one geo to the next. What are some of the other toolkits you have to react during the year? Uh, I, I think the other thing to, uh, I think it's spending a lot of time on leading indicators. Honestly, I think there's still too much time spent on lagging indicators. And, you know, after, if you're in a monthly business, you got to respond to near real time. So it's keeping a pulse of what are the core inputs to every part of that customer journey? And are you looking at them maniacally on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? And being able to go see where something is going to land. And if it's on a trajectory that you don't want it to be on, it shouldn't be on, what are you doing before it actually gets there? It goes back to that foresight. You leverage the insight to go drive the the foresight and, and changing the trajectory of, of that leading indicator. So I think instrumenting the business with leading indicators from you know beginning to end of that journey, as I called it, we call it CCOM, I think is 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 essential and it gives you the ability to react and respond proactively versus after the fact uh, responding to an outcome that you didn't you didn't want. So I think it's helping create the future on it. It's another another 
tactic there. That's great. You're watching the mile markers along the way to see if you get off course. Exactly. Exactly. And you're not waiting until you get to the end of the race and saying, oh, wait, I got to the wrong finish line. That's great. So at the start of the race, you're probably thinking about the sales capacity and you're probably also thinking about what the contribution is per rep that you put into the field. Do you have any rules of thumb around quota assignment in OTE? I've, I've heard 4X, 5X. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a tricky one. I think it depends so much on your business model. Like the answer I would give you would widely vary based on, you know, is it a enterprise business that has a heavy install base that has a, you know, a certain type of land and expand motion versus a higher velocity, small business that, that, that has a heavy digital component. Right. So I think, if, you know, in, um, to uh, get back to some some finance here, like I think it's really understanding the LTV to CAC of of that particular motion, and if you understand how your customers want to engage with you in these different segments, you can then understand, then go back and say, all right, well, here's what my journey looks like for these for our customers in these, you know, up market, mid market, down market, and then think about what are the right engagement points. Is it a human engagement point? Can it be digital? Is it AI powered? Like, what does that experience need to look like? And I think that dictates, helps you understand what those ratios should be. And I think the fact that digital and product-led growth are playing such a such a different role now than they did, like, even a couple of years ago or five years ago, the lines between go-to-market and product are really starting to blur as well. That, that's a beautiful statement. Can you can you say more about that? How are the how are the lines blurring? Well, you, you, is it a, if it's a product-led motion, you might say that that entire, you know, for a particular segment of the market, you might say that I shouldn't have any reps on it. Or you might say I want for a particular aspect of the customer journey, I would like to have, or you need to have uh, reps answer chat queries at scale if AI can do it. So I think the bar for where you, you know, as you sort of, you get to segmentation in your business and you look at, I'm thinking of a two by two, you know, you think of complexity and, you know, either revenue today or revenue potential as, as two axes, like where do you want, you probably want your humans heavily focused in that top, right. And then select cases for where you want them involved in the other areas. And then you, you think about what are those ratios based upon where they fall in that threshold? Are they a scaled type of engagement model that can have more junior folks uh, because of the level of you know, sophistication or the level of uh, the t- type of work doesn't warrant someone that is more, you know, uh, more like seasoned or tenured. I think all those things play into it. And I, so it's, I know it's easy and it's tempting. It's really tempting to go <laughs> say, here's a, here's a set of ratios and we should just go snap to it. I think you have to say like, what was the, do the companies that make up the benchmark, do they look like mine? And not just from a, are they the same size? Are they the same, you know, revenue and headcount? Do they have the same business model? Do they operate in the same markets? Do they, uh, you know, what are their different levers of, of uh, channels of growth? So there's so many variables here that each of those would give you a very different lens than just saying, oh, it's a X, you know, million dollar company with this many employees. So therefore I should go benchmark. And that's, I think you have to ask 
ask some more questions. I think there's value to benchmarks. Don't get me wrong. I just think it's important to understand what's the peer set that you're using for it. Do they operate or look like you were? Were they at a stage in some point in their trajectory that looks like where you are today or where you want to go? And then say, okay, that, that may make sense. So I, I almost think it's benchmarks are one thing. I think case studies, I think are really interesting too. To go look at other companies that are doing or are aspiring to do similar things or going at the market opportunity in a, in a, in a similar way, what could you learn from their, their journey? Right. It's like, you, you, you always like, it's, you talk about first mover advantage and then it's like, well, it's actually, you know, is it really the second mover that can learn from all the, all the mistakes, you know, Apple with its, uh, with the iPhone. Right. Yeah. I think Google was the 17th search engine to market, but it worked out well for them. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's ex- that's exactly right. It's what are you how are you crafting that experience? What you said about benchmarks is awesome for people to consider because there are a lot of companies out there probably trying to copy Snowflake blindly, companies like that or copy Cloudflare blindly, but they're not thinking about is this even the same go to market motion? Like uh, I I saw a funny tweet and it said that like everybody's getting rid of their customer success departments just because, you know, Frank Slootman at Snowflake doesn't like them. Well, it's like, well, did you actually look into the case study of, you know, why he said that or how they're deploying the other resources in the company? You can't just blindly follow what one company's doing. Yeah. And he had a specific philosophy for why he did it. You know, I read that amp it up and it talks all about his philosophy, right? So are you considering all the other things that went into his calculus of that philosophy when versus taking it at face value? Yeah. So case studies over benchmarks. Uh, yeah. As, a, as another as another angle to it, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm personally guilty of it. Like I'm a huge benchmarks buff. I'm always writing about them and comparing different companies. But I, I do think that there are a lot of general benchmarks out there that don't cut the data in terms of go-to-market motion. So you'll be comparing a PLG company to a field sales company, or you'll be comparing like a usage-based model to a seat subscription-based model, and the forest gets lost through the trees. That's, that's exactly right. It's just, do you have the right set of benchmarks that are going to give you the right signals or, or right, you know, sort of breadcrumbs on where to go look? Or is it going to take you down the wrong direction? So that's a spot on. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Something that I have personally struggled to find benchmarks on is discounting. What's your philosophy on discounting? Yeah, I think it's a it's a balance of uh, having some perspective at the at sort of a, I'll call it federal level, and and having a perspective that's at a you know aligning with your product teams, aligning with what the market opportunity is all the things that go into determining what pricing ought to look like that's relative to value should factor into what should those thresholds look like. And I think some type of central perspective and a pricing team, some companies have those, we have one, I think is healthy to really look at all the different inputs and go look at, A, are the are the list prices uh, appropriate to uh, market value and customer value? What does that what does that tell us about discounting? And then I think balancing that with how do you give different levels of autonomy and and thresholds in the field based on different use cases and scenarios. And as you start to get to the upper end of what that threshold is, it's got to have really really good justification and might need a couple more you know reviews and and looks at it. But I think it's a balance of you want to you don't want to grind sales velocity 
to a halt because your process for discount approvals is so onerous. At the same time, you want to be thoughtful about value, and you want to be you want to be driving the right behaviors in the in the field. And I think that's the balance you have to strike. It's not neither one. It's it's not overly rigid, but it's not overly like go do what you want either. You're almost describing levels of the government where there's a federal level to it. And I guess that's HQ. That's at the top. What's our philosophy on it? But I think what you're alluding to is to a certain degree, there is autonomy, maybe even at the rep level up to a certain amount. I mean, does it have to go through different tiers? Like, how do you how do you make it so it's not this huge admin for the org to check every single deal? Like you said, you want to trade deals for dollars to a certain extent. So I think you're, you're going to look at this regularly and go look at what your discounts are that are realized and look at are your thresholds right? And where do you feel comfortable on from a level of risk and from a value value standpoint that you're comfortable with a rep making that call? Or does should it go to a director? Should it and then where at what point? You know, it's not just discount percentage, it's actually what is the absolute value or potential risk to the organization of of uh, of overly discounting something. So I think it that the who it goes to and how frequently. I think depends on, you know, the magnitude of how, how important it is. But you're right. You don't want everything going to your head of sales just because it's a discount. So I think that's where you have to revisit and look at those thresholds and say, do they make sense? What are some of the factors you look at when a fat discount comes up to your level? Do you look at the number of years it's for? Like, what are the needle movers for, for you to say this justifies a deeper discount? I think it's really understanding. Does the does the rep have a good understanding of why the discount is is warranted other than, you know, it's a competitive sales cycle. You know, if it's a competitive sales cycle and it's being used to drive drive the price down, I think that's that's a data point, but is is the customer is this solution a great fit for the customer? Are they have they been engaged throughout the the process with you and this is the right solution for the customer to solve the specific pain points. And this is a way of being able to manage it within, you know, their budgets and, and get, uh, get, get through it. I, I think it's a, it's a judgment call. And discounts are a motivation to get the buy side in, but on the sell side, the other unit economics of a deal are spiffs. What's your philosophy here? I think spiffs can, can, can work as long as you're tying spiffs to, incremental behavior that you wouldn't get anyway. And I think that's the balance. Oftentimes it's like, well, let's do a spiff to focus on X product or Y product because it's a it's a new launch. That's that's fine. But then I think you have to really think about what are the implications of doing that? What does it do to the focus on the rest of the products? Are you okay with that potential implication? Would you have had focus on this product anyway because it's a new launch, it's got great product market fit, there's market pull, so that's where I go back to like incrementality of it. Is the spiff driving the right behavior? Are you okay with the the intended or unintended consequences of it? And will it have not would it have not happened if you gave the spiff if you put a spiff in place or not? So I think that incremental value side is is super super important for both you know the, the both the 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 rep has to understand how to balance that objective with their core sort of cop and 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 uh, broader objectives, assuming those are still the same objectives. 
and also give some extra push to a a, a specific incentive. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And it all goes back to what you were saying earlier, but just make the comp plan simple. Spiffs, I think, can go off the rails in a number of ways. But one of the ways is just making it so confusing that the rep is like trying to add up on a piece of paper if they're even like checking the boxes. The fewer, fewer, more intentional actions you can, you can, uh, you know, direct a, a rep to, I think it's just going to make, make a lot more sense. Fewer intentional actions. I, I love that phrase. Related to spiffs, I've also seen... Like, let's say we're working on this new product launch that the market's been asking for for three years, and we're finally going to come up with it and just pent up demand for it. And then someone's like, let's run a spiff. And then you do it. But then you you sit back and you think like, dude, they were going to buy this anyway. They've been asking for it. Why are we running a spiff with it? Like, there's pent up demand. Well, that's that's exactly it. So I think it's really understanding, like, what are the behaviors you're trying to drive? Will they happen anyway, with or without the spiff? And and using that to to really get a sense of, does this make sense economically? For the for the company to go invest in that spec, it's incremental dollars on top of what you already planned for. So it usually is related to, you know, behaviors you're trying to amplify or net something net new that came up during the year that wasn't planned for, and it's it's very disruptive to go, you know, change comp plans in the middle of the year. So this could be a way of you know you know boosting something. Or I've seen companies do this in past lives where where you have an acquisition. You know, and it's a new new solution that nobody knows anything about. What's the incentive to go learn about the new solution and put that, get that through your channels? That's that's just another another example of it where I've seen it used in the past. Spiff's post M and A are a great tool because it broadens people's horizons to something new that you're selling, especially if it didn't have the same brand name cachet as as it should now. Exactly. Exactly. Just awareness. Like, what's he, it gives it extra incentive to go learn about it, understand the go to market, you know, and sort of brings that go to market engine closer together. That's, a, that's exactly right. And what metrics do you like to look at to gauge rep productivity other than quota attainment? Let, let's just say in period, what, what's, what are you pulling up on your dashboard? Yeah. I mean, we, we look at productivity per rep. So it's a measure of MRR uh, at, a, at a rep level. That's, again, the, the lagging indicator. When you sort of go upstream, we're looking at deal creation is a big one. We're looking at what pipeline creation looks like across the different sources of pipeline we have. So it's really tracing it all the way back up, deal creation, pipeline, opportunities, and then all the way up to um, activities that the rep is actually doing to go create demand, create those opportunities, and then what does progression and close activity look like? So it's really backing the backing the train up to understand like what are the inputs that lead to these outputs given a you know a set of close rates or uh, ASPs or or uh, you know a, a type of end sales velocity right so taking those factors into account where would you go where where should you go expect it's going to be different you know different reps may have different areas where they need help or coaching so that gives a diagnostic if you sort of take a a lens of that entire sales cycle across your different reps these are the, these are the analytics we really try to arm or, or reps and sales managers with, you know where to go help with coaching. You know, you to use things like conversational intelligence to go, you know, tools like Gong to go look at where, you know, what does your discovery call sound like? Where are you asking the right questions? What is your conversion from meeting to opportunity look like? You start to marry the qualitative with the quantitative and you start to give the manager sales directors like a real, like sort of like bird's eye 
view and lens into where to go focus from a coaching standpoint and from an enablement standpoint. So those are those are just a, a couple of couple of er, uh, areas that we we go look at. And then for you know for customer success it would be a different set of metrics, but you're you're ultimately looking at what what's the measure of customer value for your business and you know is it usage utilization what does that look like and how do you uh, how do you get a really really deep understanding of whether your customers are getting the value that they expected and it, you know and, and then from there looking at what are the activities we can take as an org to little deliver upon those engagements and and so forth so it it all depends is <laughs> is is really the answer but work backwards from what that uh, leading into the lagging indicator is for the output metric. Sid, I like how you described it as a diagnostics test or a diagnostics dashboard, because that's essentially what you're doing. You're looking at, hey, I'm not I'm going to go deeper than quota here, which is usually what you talk about at the board level and a lot of meetings probably with the peers in your leadership team. But you have to go a step deeper than that and say, well, what are the activities that are creating this? And you pointed out that it's it's usually multiple things depending on what type of sales cycle it is and what type of segment you're selling into. Very much. Very much. I think you have to be thoughtful about that. What I'm going to do here is take us into what we like to call our long ass lightning round. (laughs) So the first thing I'm going to ask you is I ask everybody, what's an example of something you've messed up before in your career? What's something you've screwed up on the job before? Yeah, I think I gave you one example earlier. I'll just elaborate on that. Um, Yeah, there was a, a business where we went into the the year thinking we had a set of expectations around this business and uh for that business came in at you know sub 50 percent of plan on that particular business and mid-year i had to go course correct with 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 re- reallocating resources and reallocating the entire strategy middle of the year uh, that was it, it was just painful to do at a at a global scale so that was uh that was one that one just sticks with me of planning not planning, not not panning out as expected, and having to do some real time course corrections while the plane flying. It's funny. I bet everyone listening to this call right now is thinking about that one planning cycle that went off the rails. Like I'm thinking of one from like 2018. I think that I'm just like, oh, like I still feel that pit in my stomach. Like I, I that one didn't play out in like APJ like I planned. Exactly. This sounds like around that same time frame. So same year. That's good. Okay. You're very analytical. You seem to be pretty on top of using the best tools. I already heard you mention Gong. What's your current tool stack look like right now? What are you using to get the job done? We 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 run our business on HubSpot. You know, really end to end. I think part of that is uh, it give we need it goes back to end to end visibility of the customer. So what between our marketing, uh, our sales hub, uh, our service hub, it gives us that single view of our customers across our different teams. So the more we can have our sales team looking at the same data as our customer success team and as our marketing team, the better off we are. Now, there's different specialized tools that each team has to go do different aspects of, uh, of their jobs. Like there's a little MarTech stack. You know, we, we do use Gong. You know, conversational intelligence-wise, I think it goes back to that. That I think is so conversational intelligence. I think is so valuable because it marries the qualitative with the quantitative and helps you understand what are those different signals and things are just getting way more accessible in terms of the plethora of insights with AI and being able to summarize those and understanding what are the different what are the different um, levers or, or touch points 
that signal that you may need to adjust positioning or you may need to enable in a specific area more. So I'm of the mindset of like fewer, more consolidated tools rather than lots of different point tools to go to go do the job. It just it keeps the reps in one place with a unified experience. And also from a supporting the reps and the teams, like we're operating out of a fewer number of systems to, to go do that. And so that's a, that's a plug for sales hub and, and then the HubSpot there. So what's the most recent tool you bought for either the sales team, customer success team, or could even be for your own team? You know, I've, again, we've been really looking at where are we using existing things, to be totally honest. Um, you know, we use it, one of the tools we, we use and, you know, we're expanding our usage of is, is Anaplan, you know, and, and we do that to really look at getting an end-to-end view of connected planning, which, you know, you don't want to plan in terms of a sales, marketing, and customer success. We, we have an integrated planning team already that we brought together about a year ago, but I think really thinking about scenario-based planning and that integration and alignment with FP&A, that is a, uh, a real, it's not a rep-facing tool, but something that I think we find value in, in terms of being able to see that scenario-based view and, and look at what the different puts and takes are. So there, there's one example. And appointments came up a couple of times in the pod, so that's a good one. Sid, you've worked with and partnered with some high-profile CFOs at places like CA, Amazon, and HubSpot. I got to ask, what do you think are the qualities that separate a good CFO from a great CFO? That's a it's a great question. I I think it's the uh, ability to uh, clearly communicate to di- multiple different stakeholders what the what they need to understand from their vantage point and how do you get the organization driving behind those those objectives. Our our CFO here, uh, Kate Buger, like is one of the clearest communicators and I walk away from every town hall meeting with just like extreme clarity on what to know and and how to think about it. Um, I think it's it's a superpower of hers. So I think communication is an under underestimated or probably not represented as maybe a top one, but I think it's so important. You have so many stakeholders as a CFO and and um, and then aligning really closely with the business to as a as a business partner, to help achieve the outcomes, right? Versus uh, sort of stepping back. And I think that's, again, another example of really getting close to the business and then seeing how, what are the puts and takes to to be able to go make those different trade-offs. That's a different permutation of communication than we, that we usually get. And I'm always somebody who's beating the drum of storytelling, which I do think is a very key quality of CFOs. Another way of getting at it, yeah. But clar- clarity is an amazing way to put it because it's, it's, it's giving me less, very clearly, not more. It's like you give me ten things, you gave me nothing. But if you gave me two or three things to work on, okay, I'm ready to go. Yeah, and I think it's thinking about like if you have a, if you vision a, a rep in APJ hearing this message, what do they what do they take away from it? That's you know you, you think about where is this going outside of people who understand or in the finance function or the ops function might be closer to the numbers. Like what is the broad based organization going to take away from the message, and is that clear? Simplicity scales. That's that's how I, how I think about it. That's a good bumper sticker. Okay, last question I got for you. Hypothetically speaking, of course, what's the largest commission check you've ever heard a rep getting on a single deal? Back in one of my prior roles, I probably a one point two ish 
Yeah, like north of a million bucks. One deal. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, this is you know large, large enterprise deal, uh, multi-year. You know, so end of year accelerators. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably got into that very quickly. It was, it was yeah. And, you know, top of the president's club list, that type of thing. So that was uh, a, a long time back, but I remember that it was, and then, you know, you look at that and like, wow, it took a lot to get that too. So you learn that. So it's funny because a lot of CFOs cringe when you talk about writing a big check, but I look at that as free marketing, free publicity of look what you can do. hundred percent. It's, you know, it was, if you set the, it goes back to our earlier conversation. If you set the right incentives and you want to drive the right outcomes, you should be happy about that payment because it uh, you delivered on that and more. And maybe you want it, maybe you want it, maybe you learned something from it and you need to tweak things for the following. <laughs> yeah, that's the other side but, of it. <laughs> you know, we might trust that person's photo, but uh, I think at a, at a macro level, I think it's you, you. You probably check the box on that. Yeah, Sid. Thanks. This has been an awesome jam session on all thing all things RevOps. Appreciate it. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.